0: I'm Adam McGee,
1: and I'm Andrew Snyder,
0: and you're listening to Captured in Celluloid. Andrew, how are you?
1: Adam, I'm, I'm great. I'm always happy to be in a virtual room with you talking about movies from halfway across the world in a virus-laden hellscape.
0: Yeah, that's that's where we live. We live in a hellscape. I'm officially in lockdown again. I don't think I've shared that with you, but I am. The country of Ireland. (laughs) We're we're all back at home. So great. These are great times. But I can't think of a better remedy for all of this, for all of what the world has become is in 2020, than to take a little detour into the world of Paddington. Yes, it's finally happened. Uh, after really my impassioned pleas rantings on our Richard Iwaddy episode a couple of weeks ago, where Paddington again became the subject, here we are. I've managed to get Andrew to watch Paddington and Paddington 2, as you'll all come to learn two incredibly important movies, and here we are ready to podcast about them. Did you ever expect, Andrew, that this is something that would happen in your life, that you'd Forced into watching Paddington and Paddington 2 to podcast about them with a man on the other side of
1: the world. <laughs> so I don't think this is anything I ever expected in my life in general, or even when we started this podcast. I had a vague awareness of the Paddington uh, universe, we'll call it, the Paddington verse, but it, sure. it's not something that I really grew up with as being like omnipresent i remember my cousin have a, having randomly a paddington uh doll but like i had never read anything or seen any cartoons or what have you um and then when these movies came out i knew they were critically acclaimed and i mean paddington 2 the the year it came out arguably should have been nominated for best picture based on the reviews and based on my now experience viewing it. So I can't say that I ever expected this. It, it's very interesting after the Iwati podcast, you and I uh, are kind of brainstorming how we want to approach the future. And I think I ended up just offering this up as an idea because you did. I, after hearing your impassioned speech about getting Richard Iwati involved with directing the third one, I, i think you sold me and i was like you know what this is something that we need to do because i truly do need to see these movies and now we're here and i'll say i'm better for it and despite the sky high expectations i had i think my expectations were potentially exceeded
0: Mm -hmm. I i hope so i mean it's It's a tricky one in talking to you about this because, one, and I'm sure this will speak to possibly a lot, if not all of the people listening. I don't know what percentage of those listening will have watched the Bannington movies before. So there may well be a touch of skepticism, to say the least. There may well be just kind of this preconceived notion of, oh, this is a kid's movie and what would I. What would I waste my time with a kids' movie for why would I do this And I think in part like we're getting start with the films under merits but I think this is part of why this is an interesting conversation and these two movies are particularly interesting because at some point as a wider culture and particularly when it comes to movies, we've gone through this transition where you know family movie was a pejorative. And really it was very rarely for the entire family anymore. There was very rarely anything there of kind of not just of substance, but also they tend to be a little bit condescending. And they tend to be either looking down at their audience or they're just looking at their audience and seeing, you know, dollar signs. Just, oh, what what just what rubbish can we put out there? and have parents take their kids to theaters or have parents buy or rent whatever on VOD and just watch it over and over again? How can we do this? And this is part of, I guess, the wider uh, phenomenon discourse that has led to, say, the likes of Pixar. When Pixar release, particularly one of their originals rather than one of their, their kind of sequels, depending on the film series, but you, you know what I mean, that tends to be why you get this surge, which it's now kind of exhausted for a lot of people. I think there's a lot of eye rolling companies, it, but it's this idea of, oh, you know, this, this movie isn't just for kids. This is a great movie. It's a great movie for everyone. It can work on all levels. And there's been kind of a lot of toing and froing on just how plausible that kind of idea really is, if, if things really can work on those multiple levels. And I guess creatively a lot of people um come down on different sides in terms of filmmakers, in terms of studio executives, on what's worthwhile in terms of, you know, how much should we invest into this, not in terms of money, but in terms of time, thought, effort. And on that front, I think the Paddington movies are they're pretty special and they're representative of something that is pretty rare in movies, but I think the world of movies would be a much better place. Maybe the world would be a slightly better place too. At least a nicer place to spend time in uh, if there was some more of. But we'll get into all of that. So you mentioned okay, vague awareness with Paddington. Was it really just that kind of recognition of okay? I don't know what you say. It was a cousin or something that had a had a Paddington of some sort. was is that it you just you knew what that was but kind of didn't know anything more than that
1: yeah that's literally it I mean I know that uh the creator now is is Michael Bond and that I guess there were some children's originally were they children's books is that how the Paddington world started yeah that's
0: that's right there were a series of books
1: so I'd probably seen a book on a table in a library in a classroom at some point in my life but it's not like something where, say, for example, like Winnie the Pooh was kind of the 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 thing that I remember growing up as like the thing that was just everywhere with the the books were on my on my table and my mother would read them to me and television sh- series was always on my TV. But Paddington uh, didn't come close to that level. So going into it that cold could have ended poorly, but eventually I was rewarded.
0: It's It's interesting you bring up Winnie the Pooh. Uh, because you know, he's really, he's the, the counterpoint here. I mean, he's very much the other British bear and the bear that kind of took over the world. I, I would, uh, I'll get onto Paddington in my own childhood in a minute, but certainly uh, Winnie the Pooh was a very kind of significant character and those stories in various forms were very important in my childhood. But when you think of Winnie the Pooh, and even if you think back to your childhood, and your childhood visions of Winnie the Pooh. What does Winnie the Pooh look like?
1: Uh, I'm guessing very different from the original composition. I picture him as a yellow bear, a yellow bear, red shirt, no pants.
0: Right, that's, that's what I wanted. So it's the Disney version of Winnie the Pooh. Because I would be the same as a kid. But that, but that was the Disney version. I think that's an interesting place when we come in here in terms of okay, Winnie the Pooh took over the world, right? Um, not quite in as kind of megalomaniacal way as I've just made that sound, but we maybe we'd have been better off if Winnie the Pooh took over the world. But Winnie the Pooh became this global phenomenon. In large part, I think, because Disney took it on and gave it its own spin, and I agree, like you, the first thing that would come to my head rather than you know, the illustrations from the A. a. Milne books would be the disney version of Winnie the Pooh, which is yellow bear, red top, no trousers, famously. So I think what's interesting here, and it, this even applies to Paddington, like Paddington was pretty big for me as a kid, very big for me as a kid. It was a character that I really strongly related to. I had like multiple Paddington teddies. I remember... Uh, one of the first kind of things that are something I certainly kept for a long time. I still believe it's like in the attic here. My dad went on a business trip to New York at some point. I was maybe three, four, actually incorrect. He went on a business trip to the 1994 world cup. (laughs) And he was at a couple of games in the New York area. And he took a trip to FAO Schwartz and he came home with a Paddington for me. And I don't know if it was just, okay, you've got this thing, and then kind of the imagery of it was something I grasped to, but Paddington became something very important kind of throughout my early years in life. And the thing about that that's interesting is, I mean, by the by the 90s when I was growing up, and even by the 80s, Paddington kind of had died off in terms of cultural relevance, Michael Bond, as you mentioned, that he originally created the character and the novels originally came out in the late 50s. And by 60s and into the 70s, Paddington, particularly in the UK, but I, I do believe kind of more widely around the world, was a sensation, was a really big deal. Uh, Paddington merchandise, particularly Paddington Bears, uh, were a pretty hot commodity that you would find in toy stores all over the world and kids everywhere would have them. And that had kind of faded off, but the remnants of it, I guess, were still around. So I do remember having Paddington books as a kid. Obviously, I had a couple of Paddington teddies. The other thing I remember, and I, I did talk to you about this privately before, maybe I talked about this on our first episode of this kind of Reborn podcast, Because it was definitely a discovery I had around that time. There was a Paddington series. A Paddington TV series. um, On British TV. In the 1970s. Into the 1980s I believe. It was on the BBC. And it was created by the famous animator Ivor Wood. Who created the Magic Roundabout. The Wombles. Postman Pat. Another big character in my childhood and you'll find a lot of this on youtube and i'd recommend going and check it out one because it's really really cool just the animation style what they've done is pretty impressive but it's kind of this flat 2d hand-drawn world all of the characters are 2d and um, all of the world is 2d and then you've got this basically paddington bear puppet in 3d walking around the space and it creates this really cool effect It was basically, let's say, take a couple of uh, Michael Bond's books. Adapt them into 20, 25 minute TV episodes, illustrate them, have Paddington walk around. That was that was a core idea of it. It was kind of anecdotes or even full storylines from the books was very successful for quite some time. It stopped. Now, that would have been lingering on TV over here by my childhood. I would have seen it quite a lot. I did observe to you, I only came across, it was, it was actually last Christmas, there was a Michael Bond documentary on the BBC, a Paddington documentary mostly, but kind of focused on Michael Bond. And it showed this clip from that series, um, an episode called Paddington Goes to the Movies, which is up on YouTube in full, where he stumbles into a movie theatre, uh, basically falls head over heels for Singing in the Rain, sees the Gene Kelly singing in the rain sequence on the street, as I've mentioned before, my all-time favorite sequence in movies, and just becomes completely kind of captivated by it, goes out onto the street and then creates. It's a shot-for-shot recreation in an animated Paddington of the Gene Kelly dance from Singing in the Rain. It's incredible. Go check it out.
1: He'd never been to the cinema before, and in view of the weather, Singing in the Rain sounded an ideal way of keeping dry. Not that he felt much like singing himself. It was as he drew near to a door marked exit that he heard the sound of music. Paddington decided to investigate the matter, and in doing so, he suddenly discovered a whole new way of
0: something with Paddington that was just kind of deep rooted in my brain and even when now I watch the movies and as I've come to think about you know the tv series or even the books and even read about the character in the last couple of years I think there's something as well of like Paddington's values that I may have taken on as a child and may just be in there and This is kind of where I want to jump off because I think this is an interesting discussion before we get into just here's Paddington 1, what we think of it, here's Paddington 2. There's something about this that, to me at least, we'll see if you agree or disagree, is just so different to almost anything else that is out there for kids to watch right now. I see this, like I have a couple of cousins who are, young children and in recent years you see the kind of stuff they're watching and you just get a sense of say compared to when you and i were kids and what programming would have been and that's for people who are engaging with tv at all or then to what you know kids stories and books would be there's a there's a very different feel a very different vibe and honestly the thing i come across it is they're much dumber <laughs> they're just they' don't, they don't have as much going on. They're not engaging with the same sort of things. And I don't know, this concerns me. I don't have children. This is something I think about is what will kids 20 years from now be like? Uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. They've got a lot of stuff they've gone through already. But what is the kind of the culture they're going to consume? the stuff they're going to engage in, what is that going to do to who they are, to how they think, to how they view the world? Or am I just having this completely you know, outdated idea and thinking that you know there's anything other than you know what the next video on YouTube is that's going to shape that for people? And this is one of the things I really like about the Paddington films, is I feel they retain this really old-fashioned charm and this heart and this kind and kind of moral center that I don't know it just seems like most shows and certainly I'm more equipped to talk about movies whenever I see a movie that's kind of kids adjacent a lot of the time it feels like the filmmakers have just seen it as something pretty trivial it is just to print some money and I don't know what the long-term effect of that is but when I watch Paddington I'm I'm glad that it's the way it is and it makes me think about this
1: yeah, that's interesting that you bring up YouTube because I think you're spot on that that's probably the type of entertainment that, that children are is really going to shape them and be like their habit-forming viewing more than it was in the past. Obviously, uh, my parents, like we said, could just put on Winnie the Pooh for several hours and I'd be good to go. But now it's... Um, I remember my wife's uh, father's friend they have kids and i remember one thanksgiving the uh the five-year-old daughter was just sitting on an ipad watching prank videos and i was like wow. what is happening <laughs> uh, and that is just like so far different from the types of things that i was watching growing up
0: yeah that's, that's not sesame street for example you know what i mean i i know sesame street still exists in some format but i just i do think there is a There's an entire kind of... This doesn't just apply to kids' programming or children's kind of content. And maybe, like, the way the parents consume stuff has moved so far beyond any place where the idea of kids having their attention held by some of these more quaint ideas might just not work. Like, I don't know. But the kind of the corrosion of the internet and how it may factor into and what it what it does how it kind of completely wipes out a certain area of storytelling or even a certain kind of movie. This is similar actually to a conversation you and I had about a very different uh, property but I would say ultimately also a family movie which is Adam Sandler's Hubie Halloween which came out on Netflix last week which I was struck by just how inoffensive, like, an Adam Sandler movie is. Maybe that was always the case, but when I was younger, I was like, okay, there's a bit more edge to this. But I think particularly now, particularly in 2020, you're like, you know, it's so rare and so weird to see something that's just kind of warm and family-oriented, and it's just not, I don't know, it's not filled with spite, or it's not just overtly kind of I don't know, it's not something pushing a cynical agenda. Like, uh, there's something very cynical you could uh, uh, apply to the idea of Adam Sandler's multi-million, multi-movie Netflix deal where he just calls up friends and, you know, goes and makes whatever movie. But uh Hubie Halloween, which I, to my surprise, quite liked, I liked it because I was like, there's something just warm. There's something old-fashioned about this there's something that in the current landscape, this is particularly kind of welcome from where I am. And the, the same thing applies in a very different way to Paddington. I think all of that harps back to something that maybe this makes me sound really old. Maybe you too, if you agree with it, that we're kind of pining after something that was of our childhood, but is no more. But I do think if you're to compare, say, things that were important and influential for us growing up and things that were important and influential for our parents growing up. The difference between those two things is nowhere near as great as the difference between our generation to the next generation. And how that plays out is kind of interesting, but also really scary.
1: Yeah, the the warmth of it all is something that I couldn't help but be struck by during uh, both Paddington movies. They're still in these movies and in things like hubie halloween there's that cynicism and meanness off to the side but at the end of the day everyone is just won over by the kindness of of whoever the story's centered around it's very similar to a show that you're never going to watch that i don't ever want you to watch called ted lasso uh it's it's uh like a a protagonist that's just so kind and good-natured and good-hearted that you can't help but root for them and obviously that's not the only way that you have successful movie. I think in Paddington in particular, just the world of characters that are built around Paddington are particularly funny, uh, unique and interesting. And it's, a, it's a very well plotted movie. Things happen and it's, oh, yeah. it's interesting to watch him, you know, navigate his new life and it's all centered around that kindness and, I think especially especially in 2020, just watching something that's so well made, so well crafted, so unique to the time, since we're not seeing things like this as much anymore, we're not getting except for Pixar. We're not getting that movie that I can go into it as an adult and, you know, take my non-existent child and they can enjoy it. And then I can see the jokes that are for me and see the things that are for me and and really recognize the quality of the performances.
0: Sure. There's that. But I think the thing that I like with Paddington is it isn't this clear divide of the jokes that are for you and the jokes that are for the kids, as in it's not playing at this level that is really like overlaid with innuendo. That's over the kid's head. I don't like that. That's it's disingenuous. And I don't know what the point of that is. It's more, it's more hitting a level where, you know, it may have jokes that are just a little bit too sophisticated for every kid to get at that point, but there's nothing kind of there's something very classical about it. It's kind of its structure and the setup, and particularly when it comes to the jokes and the humor, there's something very classical. I mean, something that is very obvious, as particularly in the movies, as a reference point, there are kind of direct visual cues and even just some of the sequences play out like this is the similarities with charlie chaplin's tramp character so one scene i'm thinking of particularly is in paddington 2 so in paddington 2 when paddington needs to get work and he decides he's going to be a window cleaner rather than when he actually starts and he's kind of going around people's houses the very first sequence where he's trying to work this out and there's a ladder and he's basically being used as a counterbalance to a bucket. Cause he doesn't weigh a lot and he's just going up and down. It's, it's just really old school, broad appeal, like visual comedy. That's still funny. You know, it still works. It's not, it's not kind of above or below anyone. It's not really, it's completely inoffensive and yet it's, it's doing something that works. It takes kind of intelligent work through it and it it takes thought in terms of working out the mechanics of the joke to make it pay off and in these movies that kind of physical comedy is executed to perfection but I think it points to something that rather than the kind of purely two tracks where oh yeah the, the kids are laughing at this thing but the parents are really laughing at this thing I think it understands that there's a lot to be said for making something that you can't make something for everyone. It's it, it's not entirely possible to make something that everyone is going to love. But if you strive for that, and you're pretty good at what you do, you can come close. And I think that's what these movies do. And I think that's to be admired. Part of me wonders, is it just, you know, in the 2020, in the corporate 2020 that we live in, is it just impossible for, you know... A movie to be greenlit and made in a fashion where someone can say, you know, my target audience isn't just this, you know, where it's not like this kind of where we're pinpointing this exact category of person. The idea of saying, you know, we're going to make a movie about a CGI bear who comes from Peru, moves in with a family in London and has some adventures and not only are kids going to love it, but it, it can appeal to adults too. Like, that seems kind of bold and revolutionary in terms of it's the kind of thing that just anecdotally would get laughed out of, out of pitch meetings and isn't isn't really compatible with how studios in particular think of their, their big budget or their potentially kind of profitable fare. And to that front, I mean, Paddington is not the Avengers. But the first movie made for like, I think, 50-ish million dollars. Grosses just under 300 million worldwide. The second film made for, I think, less, about 40, 45 million dollars, makes it a 230 million worldwide. Like, that's good business. That's really profitable off of a modest enough kind of outlay. Um, for the the market and for the kind of size audience that you are playing for, that it's just unlike much of anything else, and I think that makes it interesting. It isn't just that you know you you get the point I'm making. Pixar, for example, like I love Pixar, but Pixar can wander quite far into the realm of euphemism at times, like not in a really insidious <laughs> way. That's kind of like my God, I hope the kids don't get this. But it can lean on something a little bit different when it's not at its best. And certainly Pixar's imitators, that can be very apparent. I've I've seen quite a few of like the Universal or the DreamWorks CGI animations, where they really are working hard to make this a movie that, you know, the adults are really gonna enjoy the level it's working on here, while the kids are just kind of I don't know, maybe they're not even in their seats. Maybe they're wandering around, but the parents are there. We've got them in. They've paid for the tickets. They've paid for the popcorn. So we're going to have it do something for them, where I think Paddington is evidence of, hey, just make it good. You know, make the storytelling work, make the jokes work, give it heart, give it real earned emotion, and people respond to it. And that's part of what, for me, makes it so refreshing.
1: I agree. There's a, there's a cleverness to the jokes the the verbal jokes rather than that sort of double entendre or euphemism that you're winking at the adults in the audience you're you're right it's it's beyond that into something that could be enjoyed by all and also it's just i guess it's not dumbing itself down i can think of one example that for some reason just like really really cracked me up watching the first paddington is when uh one character calls the the brown household trying to disguise his voice to you know covertly help them with a certain task that i won't spoil and hugh bonneville's character henry brown the the patriarch of the family yeah is not fooled by it in the least and when he hangs up with the phone someone asks who who is it and he said it was mr curry doing a funny voice and for some reason the perfect delivery of that line and just the the simplicity does feel classic clever and unique and isn't dumbing itself down but also isn't trying to overstep a line so that it makes the adults laugh for shock value or or going there or something like that
0: yeah and we'll talk about the performances i guess that's a key part of it but this is another element which is how about we get great actors in and we let them have fun with it and we work with it that they're giving great line readings like we write good dialogue but then we let them free to play with it to very clearly have fun with it and you get really positive results. One for me, and I'm on this particular rewatch of Padding Two, that stuck out for me. Like, we'll talk quite a lot about Hugh Grant, and Hugh Grant is the obvious one. Hugh Grant was the person that there was a real like Oscar campaign where people are like, Hugh Grant needs to be nominated for Best Supporting Actor here. Brendan Gleason stole the movie for me on rewatch, and just some of his line readings, like uh, as Knuckles McGinty, just an all time great character. But when he'd keep repeating, I don't do nothing for no one for nothing, uh, that really, really works. His line reading of it is just really funny. The way he would say marmalade, these kind of details, which it's it's not taking much beyond, oh, hey, really talented actors. And you give them high quality material. You let them have some fun with it. And they come up with something creative that's really interesting and works. Like there's a, there's a very clear element to that, that. I think the line readings in Paddington are pretty remarkable for a lot of them. The the example you've given is a great example of that, where it's something very simple, but it is the delivery of it that just really works. There's a, a very sharp, quick wit that kind of propels the movie along. It keeps the laughs coming, but it also allows the actors to really kind of have their moments you know, have their moments. Even if you are a character like Mr. Brown, Hugh Bonneville's character, who is generally he has his he has his moments to shine a different way, but he's generally the the more kind of understated character of the movies, and yet he can still have his fun with those lines while still playing that character that way. And that kind of speaks to the overall effect that play and the overall kind of thought that's very clearly gone into how they work through it.
1: It's funny you mention that. Uh, Hugh Grant to begin with and kind of the way his character un- unveils himself throughout Paddington too. I felt the same way, even if it was probably a little m- more camp with Nicole Kidman in the first Paddington, mm-hmm. it- it's just getting these really well-known and the guest starring roles, uh, talented actors and actresses and letting them cook. Uh, another thing I wanted to point out in terms of the performances, the, first of all, the the child actors, uh, Madeline Harris and Samuel Jocelyn, I think are are both very good. Um, and I thought they improved from movie to movie, you know, as, as a young actor might do now, if Paddington voiced by Ben Wishaw, is the heart and the center of the movie, I think you could also make the case that Sally Hawkins, Mary Brown is, is also mm-hmm. also part of that warm center. And without her and her just acceptance of Paddington right away, that somehow still feels earned i think the, f- the first moment that she sees him sitting at paddington station i mean we really get a real window into who she is as a person she's this eternal optimist who cares about her family and just cares about people and i guess bears <laughs> in this this scenario and we've seen a lot of sally hawkins lately in um in, in re- our podcast yeah theory. in the <laughs> Uh, ayawati movies and she's also great in the shape of water in a much different role but i i just can't help but think how this movie would work without her bringing what she brings to the table and that just comes down to like you said casting the right people in the right roles and just casting tremendous actors and giving them the, the the right stuff to work with and making not not setting out to make a kids movie or making a family movie but just making a movie
0: yeah she's great i mean she's got a an incredible kind of sense of empathy in every film she's in um she's just seems to be this really gentle spirit it certainly comes across in the roles that she tends to get i was only when watching this that i was thinking that submarine is actually very much against type for her um and just has a bit more edge than most characters I've seen Sally Hawkins play, but she is, she's incredible and she really does elevate everything else around her. Um. So yeah, that's absolutely a, a point worth making. Uh, let's, let's transition into the two films kind of specifically then and work through them. Did you have a favorite of the two?
1: I definitely think Paddington two is the better film, but I, I don't want to use that to diminish paddington itself in any way because i think it's it's definitely the perfect way to start a film franchise because you need a, a little bit of that origin story to a degree enough to kind of set the scene and then un unpeel different layers of orange skins uh <laughs> as you as you, nice. at, yeah that that could have been articulated better but and then peel back more layers as the film franchise progresses. I mean, I think this is, it's just a perfect entry point into the story about Paddington. And so a lot of, a lot of the first half of that movie has to be that exposition and really getting us into this world and familiarizing ourselves with this world. Whereas Paddington two kind of takes that next step, especially with the plot and introducing additional side characters and really, developing the world and who paddington is in this world as he adjusts to to life in london and life in other areas that we might dig into later so i think it's really just paddington is the natural extension of paddington one and it's i mean i gave it five stars on letterboxd we told we talked about how ridiculous it is um to rate movies but i, I thought it was near perfect
0: it's it's perfect. It's as close to perfect as any movie gets. Paddington two. If you just take it in for what it is, and you say, okay, well, what what can this movie be if you if you look at it throughout how the plot develops, and just the kind of the multiple payoffs, all the groundwork that's there throughout it, and then how that's paid off, the performances, the writing, the visuals, everything is it's just as good as it gets it, it really is like i i don't think there's ever been a better film like in its genre i mean it's it's on a par with anything in the kind of family movie pantheon and that's very high praise But i i certainly think it lives up to that paddington i i agree paddington the first of the two movies is really good it is does have to give you the like your Spider-Man Batman origin style story to begin with. And I think why it has to do that is not because that's necessary really to tell the story of Paddington in a lot of ways you could, you could rework that and do it in a different way. But I think it's because Paddington is overtly political and Paddington is not political because they've decided we want to make a kid's movie and make it political. It's, Political because of what the character is, what it represents, and really what Michael Bond created it to represent in the nineteen fifties. So Paddington is he is an immigrant; he's essentially a refugee who arrives in London. He arrives in a in a rescue boat, in a lifeboat, having stowed away, and obviously, in a contemporary sense, all of this is all the more kind of rich and potent as a subtext to the story. And it's something that I think certainly lands a lot harder, but also speaks to the ongoing, uh, I I don't even know what the word is, debate would certainly not be the word because it's not a debate. We'll we'll say how people are addressing uh, their feelings in different countries around the world about, say, the migrant crisis or about immigrants in their countries. Paddington is landing kind of right in that and addressing it head on. So there's a couple of things worth pointing out as we kind of get into this. So first of all, Paddington pretty famously from anyone who has had or has seen like an actual like Paddington teddy bear in real life. You've seen an illustration of the book or you've seen the movie and you've seen where he kind of when he first lands in London in the in the first of the movies. You'll notice he has around his neck. He has this tag, which the tag reads, "Please look after this bear, thank you." It's very simple. It's very much iconic at this point, particularly for anyone who has any kind of uh, just recognition of Paddington. I mean, I, I would think particularly say UK and Ireland, that tag and that idea is very much something that's kind of seared in a in a wider cultural memory. The origin of that, though, is that Michael Bond's family used to take in escapees, escapee children during the war. And they took in some Jewish children who had fled from Germany, from Nazi Germany. And this idea of the tag and this idea of Paddington and Paddington kind of being taken into a home and needing to be taken into the home and being an outsider... And then dealing with the challenges that came with that, they came from Michael Bond's own kind of personal experience and memories of those Jewish children from Nazi Germany, but also from young English children who were sent from big cities, the likes of London, that were under major bomb threat during the war, and sent off to train stations to go to the countryside where they would be safe. And they were sent with tags like this this is kind of, it's touching on something kind of very harrowing, very real, and then feeding into a more general idea of, you know, the refugee or the immigrant. So Paddington arrives, Paddington, an orphan uh, in the movie after kind of pretty, pretty full on early on. I mean, this is a spoiler because it happens early, but I will say let's let's just talk with spoilers about Paddington. We're not going to Right? (laughs) That's for the best. Yeah. So very early on in the movie, opening scene, Paddington's uncle, he bites the bullet. He falls to a not-too-pleasant death. And from there, Paddington is sent off by his aunt, his Aunt Lucy, to London. They have this romanticized magical vision of London from an explorer visiting them in Peru, a British explorer... And then bonding with this explorer, so in their head they've always wanted to visit London. They've always had this great idea of London, and they've always seen Britain and London as this place that you know everyone will look after each other. Everyone will say hello to you, and that's Paddington is being sent there with this tag around his neck because you know this is a place where someone will go and they'll help Paddington to have a better life. I think in a modern context, this works even better. Because anyone who's ever been to London, well, though, sure, lots of nice people in London, but one of the fastest moving cities in the world, and there isn't a whole lot of time. I could imagine a bear just being there at a train station and people just not noticing, people kind of brushing by. And that's kind of our introduction. And that's the key elements of the origin story to paddington right would you agree with that or you as an outsider was there anything else that you think is key to setting up where this kind of picks up from
1: no i think that's spot on uh paddington similar to me has a romanticized view of london that doesn't actually exist when you get there but it's still a very nice place
0: the street that paddington ultimately ends up living on that that notting hill street would fit would fit right into your view of london right
1: yeah i mean if you could just post me up there i'll i'll uh, take the train to a different football ground every weekend then you know then i've got something cooking but i'll, I'll wash your windows whatever wherever i gotta do i'll, <laughs> I'll make you marmalade
0: There's some sort of bear over there. Probably selling something. Hello there. Mary. Hello. This young bear needs our help, Henry.
1: What are you going to do now?
0: Probably just sleep over there in that bin. That's the spirit.
1: It's just for one night.
0: Do bears even have names? My name is... Right. You try it. Mr. Brown, that is extremely rude.
1: Perhaps you like an English name.
0: An English name?
1: Paddington!
0: Paddington. Paddington. Paddington! Oh, sorry. I like it. He's going in the attic and I want you all to lock your doors.
1: You alright? All good. That
0: bear is a danger to this family.
1: Awesome. tomorrow
0: that bear is out of here this is paddington he's a bear i can see that that creature means a great deal to me is he endangered he is now the furry menace is home alone i'm going to stuff you bear i beg your pardon paddington's the best thing that's ever happened to the children Wind, two hot winds, but I like it. Well, I hope I don't look weird.
1: It doesn't matter that he's a different species, or that he has a worrying marmalade habit.
0: Paddington's family. Paddington, coming. What this family needed
1: was a pinch of chaos.
0: Actually, quite good fun. Ah. Okay, so the plot for this movie, and I would think think this is the the main area where it doesn't live up to Paddington Two. I think the plotting is so tight in Paddington Two; it's just really, really sharp, well worked out. Uh, a little bit baggier, and also very much the parallels to 101 Dalmatians and to Cruella de Vil are kind of tough to avoid in Paddington, and that makes it just feel a little bit more iterative, although in some ways it might be darker in places, but it does have an interesting edge with the Nicole Kidman character you alluded to earlier.
1: It's funny, I agree with everything you're saying there, and those comparisons are impossible not to notice, and it's something I think when you're first getting introduced to the character that for me I felt like I was going to be bothered by it more than I was and then I think as you go on the journey it just kind of ends up working but that that's just a a minor point about that character
0: yeah well the idea behind it is Paddington when he arrives in London he's looking for you know this place to go looking for someone to look after him the Brown family take him in um, shenanigans ensue this is a bear after all and it it's a case of, you know, we've got to find someone who can take care of Paddington. We've got to find a place for him longer term. Who does he know? What can we do? The only contact Paddington has is that there was this explorer who came to Peru, who met, got to know his aunt and uncle, and that's the reason Paddington has been sent here in the first place. So I guess the film from that point becomes a not very focused like there's a lot of kind of breathing through a lot of just kind of fun easy set pieces and a lot of just kind of character moments but ultimately we are moving towards this idea of okay paddington is trying to find the explorer who was in peru so he has someone that he can live with etc etc of course the explorer is long dead but the explorer's daughter it turns out is still around she's nicole kidman's character um Millicent Clyde is the character's name. Uh, Montgomery Clyde was her father, the explorer. And she is a taxidermist who works in the Natural History Museum and is basically trying to salvage her father's legacy. She she is upset that her father doesn't have a legacy like so many other great explorers, because rather than, you know, kill the bear and bring it home with him and be like, here, look at this great sample I've got, he... uh, I guess, grew fond of the bears and respected them and left them and ultimately kind of lost his job, um, lost the position he had in the whatever, Society of Geographers. Uh, all of that sounds much more convoluted, really, and harder work than it is, but it does set up this kind of sense of Nicole Kidman as this looming cruel, the vilesque figure who is intent on capturing, kidnapping Paddington killing him and stuffing him and putting him on display, which is pretty dark and hardcore.
1: Yeah, I mean, just a little light taxidermy after murdering an anthropomorphic bear that eats marmalade and is exceedingly polite. You know, that old chestnut.
0: Okay, so that takes care of the plot. What are the details of this movie, or what are the what kind of performance elements spoke to you? Like, you, you mentioned Sally Hawkins. What about Ben Whishaw? What, what do you think of Paddington? I mean, this obviously applies to not just this film, but the sequel.
1: As an adult, Adam, when you think of watching a movie led by a CGI bear, you don't necessarily think that that's something that's going to really get you to invest emotionally and really move you as a person. But it did, and I'm I'm a big fan of this interpretation of Paddington. He's my first interpretation of Paddington, so that could have a, a lot to do with it. And all I love
0: how part... James Bond you've made that sound.
1: Right, I, I'm really excited uh, for uh, for the Americanized Paddington we get in 25 years. I'm I'm really looking forward to that. Actually, that that'll never happen, but still. Um,
0: Please God, let that not happen. No offense, Andrew, but that's like the stuff of nightmares.
1: Paddington from alabama honey a <laughs> southern accent uh i can voice him but ben ben wishaw's voice performance is important because i guess the the animation is one thing but the voice is really what you come to know and really what brings paddington to life more than anything because he he brings that emotional center and that politeness and then that kind heartedness full center like they're I, I'm having trouble thinking of like particular quotes, but there are just so many moments where he would say just like the nicest thing possible. I think it was when they were on the stairs and the the daughter Judy Brown was lamenting, you know, being in a new school and she was afraid to acknowledge that he was that he was staying with them because it's tough to fit in a new school, and he just says something so softly and kindly that it's it's really hard to be new or something, and I was just like ah. ah, ah. And if it's if it's coming out of um a different someone else's voice, like if, if Jamie Carragher is delivering that line, it doesn't work quite as well as the life and emotion that Ben Whishaw brings to the, the character.
0: Do you know who was originally supposed to voice Paddington?
1: I did read this uh, Colin Firth and uh, I don't know if that I don't know if that works, honestly
0: when I say originally meant to voice him, he did voice him. Uh, I, I think he essentially, you know, completed all of his voice work on the film. And then a few months out from its release, Paul King, the director decided this isn't working. I want a younger actor. I need a younger sounding voice. And basically Paddington just needs an entirely different energy, which is very easy to understand. Certainly having seen the film, I think, Part of what really works is just the the childlike wonder for kind of all of the ways that he's kind of quite polite and gentlemanly. You don't necessarily want, like, a 60-year-old man doing that with a very kind of stiff upper lip British accent because that is actually, you know, that's not what Paddington is supposed to be anyway. That's very much kind of... comfort is, like he could be mr brown you know that's the kind of character he's meant to play it would have been a really significant misstep and i don't think it would have worked at all i think the whole thing would have come crashing down so they made the decision a few months before uh because of that like ben wishaw came in like the first film was done like it was very much he wasn't involved in the process throughout he had to come in and do his voice work as opposed to and paddington too He was very much involved the whole way throughout the process. Uh, He did kind of an insanely high uh, number of hours for his voice work, which more than people generally do with these kind of roles, because he was just doing so many reads, so many reads, so many reads. And he really shaped the character, I guess, a lot more in Paddington 2, where in the first film he came in and essentially just picked up the slack and reworked what would have been a column-first performance. But I do think like it's you could just almost breeze past and not talk about Ben Wishaw because his face isn't there. Uh, but like the movies work purely because of him. Like there's all the other things that make them great. But for example, if it was Colin Firth or was any other number of actors, I don't think it would work. There's something very um, gentle and kind of understated about Ben Wishaw, which just perfectly fits Paddington. Um, you don't necessarily always notice him in the room, but he's worth listening to, he's worth paying attention to. Like that's it's the kind of performance that he gives as cue in the Bond movies that he gave in films like The Lobster. Uh people who are familiar with Ben Wishell's work, you'll have kind of seen that over the years. And I I think Pannington is right up there with some of the best of his work. And in a way, again, like and you mentioned, you don't really it would be easy to come into this movie and just not think about it or not think that. You know, how much am I really going to respond to this CGI bear? But I think for most people, the answer is quite a lot. And it's also worth, I guess, at this point saying the CGI is really good Uh, just in terms of creating a character that feels real in a, you know, oh, I want to cuddle that bear sense. This is something that should be very simple in terms of that kind of test for these films but if you think of just the amount of movies, like terrible kids reimaginings of like famous IP, famous works of kind of children's literature over the years where just terrible CGI or terrible kind of cheap puppetry undoes the whole thing. The fact that Paddington looks the way he does, I think it's pretty important.
1: Yeah, I agree. It is. It is something that that it, here's a weird way to describe it because the the plot of this movie we've described a little bit but also when paddington gets to london and starts to live with this family and as the movies progress it's like oh yeah this is kind of weird but a bear lives here and we're just all gonna acknowledge that as part of our lives now and move on with it and something about I think how good it looks makes that almost feel normal and it's, it doesn't even phase phase you in the least because there is something absurd about the premise in general and it just all comes together and works really well. and that I think everything tied together with whichha's performance and then just how sh- sharp everything looks and uh, I think that's a combination of factors that make it that way.
0: Yeah, I mean, we'll get on to Paddington Two in just a second, but you've you brought up kind of how it looks, and it's it's worth mentioning. I, there is certainly there is, I think, an evolution in Paddington Two in a lot of ways. I think the characters found midway through the first film that may in part be because of when Ben Whishaw came onto it, and once once that kind of comes across, I think the the feel of the movie changes. That Paddington Two just it's kind of so much breezier and just easier from the start, you can really just kind of slot into place with these characters and be like oh well this is great and this is not just because you've seen the first film and it's like oh great, there's Paddington again and it's more just how natural the whole setup is and how the world is built and that does come back to how it looks. The film is shot both films were shot by Eric Wilson who we talked about on the IWAD episode. He's the cinematographer on both Submarine and Double. Again, just phenomenal work. He really doesn't work all that often in movies anymore. Uh, Paul King, as I, as we discussed in that Richard Iwadi episode, is like him and Iwadi are part of kind of a larger group of kind of creative figures in the UK that came up together on shows like The Mighty Boosh, where both Richard Iowadi and Paul King worked. Richard Iwadi even appears for a very funny cameo in Paddington 2. But there is something to the look here that is really arresting. It really draws you in. It's bright, it's vibrant colors. It has a really spectacular pop to it. And I mean, the obvious comparison, and certainly I think as we get onto Paddington two, there is the Wes Anderson of it all. And it's, it's certainly pronounced. There is a Wes Anderson influence on Paul King. I think there's very specifically, uh, you know, influences of different Wes Anderson films. I don't know if you found this, but for example, the house to me is very Roy Tenenbaums house. And there is even a shot very much like in Tenenbaums where we get kind of, we get almost like the dollhouse uh, cut away from it where we're seeing all of the rooms and we're seeing people simultaneously acting out things in the rooms. You know, this is a trademark of Wes Anderson that he loves to do this. We get another version of Land, the prison in Paddington Two. You know the kind of shot I'm talking about.
1: Uh yes, I, 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 I'm remembering it more in the prison than than in the house. Yes,
0: it, it's it's used in the prison as well. Um, but the house, I think, just the general divide, the layout of the house, there is something Royal Tenenbaums-esque about it. The other thing, and throughout both of these films, which is like a really kind of bold choice, it's one that works and works really effectively and uh, and then soundtracks the whole thing is the presence of this calypso band which is again kind of paying tribute to the the caribbean influence in london and in particularly the areas of london where this was this was set i'm not sure if it was necessarily shot there but where it was set and again pointing to this idea of paddington as the immigrant and the other kind of the outside influences that have come to make London and have come to make the UK what it actually is and how that's contributed to it. So the Calypso band in Paddington, to me, it reminds me so much of, I think it's his name, Sue George in um the Life Aquatic with Steve Zazo and all the Bowie covers. Do you remember these, the Portuguese Bowie covers?
1: Uh, I think that's a Wes Anderson I haven't seen.
0: Oh, okay. I think you'd like Life Aquatic a lot. Uh, but there is this kind of same, okay, we're the camera's going to pan over here and we're going to get a musical performance now uh, from people who are just, their characters in the world, but they are just here and they're playing music. And then the other thing is in Panic! 2, I mean, the prison sequences, between the prison, between the cakes that are made in the prison, between the, the kind of the presence of the colour pink, it, it's like so overtly influenced by the Grand Budapest Hotel and yet it does so in a way that actually still remains really effective and that kind of whole aesthetic still works so some kind of interesting choices visually that fit perfectly with a kind of with a family movie, with a kids movie, but they also they make the world around Paddington, they make Paddington kind of add to that world, fill out that world they make it all the more interesting visually Paddington 2. Mr. Gruber? Oh, what's this? Ah! This is London. It's wonderful. Aunt Lucy always dreamed of coming to London. If she saw this, it would be like she were finally here. Aunt Lucy! Oh, Paddington.
1: This is perfect.
0: I've had a brilliant idea. I'm going to get a job and buy that book for Aunt Lucy's birthday. Hello, window cleaner. Ow.
1: Are you quite sure you're ready for the workplace, Paddington? It's Phoenix Buchanan. Dad's celebrity client.
0: I suppose you know who I am. Oh yes, you're a very famous actor. VIP, celebrity, <laughs> or used to be. Now you do dog food commercials. <laughs> this pop-up book. Where on earth did you find it? Mr. Gruber's antique shop. Stop, Freeze! Ah!
1: Ah! Hold it right there.
0: Oh, but I'm not the thief.
1: Mysterious things have been happening all over town.
0: We're rich again. I may look like a hardened criminal, but I'm innocent. We're gonna need a foolproof plan. If anyone can recognize a criminal, it's us.
1: He's a master of disguise. What? Wow. This is breaking an editor! Haven't broken anything! You're
0: going
1: there. Paddington wouldn't hesitate if any of us needed help. He looks for the good in all of us. Ah! Marmalade. Take a seat.
0: (laughs) Come on, Murphy what was it most that kind of we'll we'll go through the plot details a second but what was it that really kind of connected with you or resonated with you or left an impact on you from this film because obviously you did mention the start it was your favorite of the two but also that you you think it's a, a pretty special movie overall
1: i think it's the scale up in plot honestly for me because in the first film, like you said, like I said, we we're getting introduced to this world, and now we're dropped into to Paddington, kind of just going about his normal life, and then we get a hard right turn, <laughs> and the the seriousness of what's happening, and kind of how it mirrors a, a story that we've seen told before but in a much more interesting way and it still being in a family movie is kind of insane to me. Like the degree of difficulty with the plot and what they pull off. I'm thinking of like something like The Fugitive, but Paddington. Yeah,
0: that's a really really good comparison because that is what the movie is.
1: (laughs) And it's 10 times better.
0: (laughs) It's 10 times better. No wonder, Andrew, I did not like The Fugitive. I think we now have our explanation for it.
1: You're like, I've already seen the fully realized version of this. And uh, this this is doing nothing for me. Um, So that the elevation of the plot and I think the addition of the other like kind of tangential characters Mm -hmm. elevated as well. I mean, like you said, Brendan Gleeson, who's just a, a very, very good and accomplished actor most recently he played uh donald trump and the comey rule i haven't seen that just for, for my own sanity but from for everything i've read it sounds like he gave a great performance and then in particular hugh grant comes in and it's just like not chewing up the scenery but he's clearly just having a wonderful time and embracing this narcissistic uh but very prim and proper scumbag and i, I just I love the way everything just ratchets up a notch and I mean I, I also just had the time of my life watching uh watching everyone bond in prison and I learned how to make marmalade. So all of those things combined together, I think it's just a a step up in plot and a step up in execution.
0: Okay, Hugh Grant. I have little to no time for Hugh Grant, the the movie star. I, I don't think there's another movie of his I've ever seen and liked other than Paddington 2. And even carrying all of that baggage, uh, I was bowled over when I first saw this and just in awe of his performance and felt like he has finally found the perfect role. um, A role that in a lot of ways he may not have had to reach too far for, certain elements of it. My one of my favorite elements of this is uh, like Hugh Grant plays a very narcissistic actor uh, by the name of Phoenix Buchanan. And without getting into all of the plot elements now where we end up in his house at one point in the movie and in a room where he has kept lots of his old costumes that he's now putting to very uh, good for him. Not so good for Paddington use criminal use. Uh, to really drive the main storyline of the film along. But in the room and in his house, there are all of these incredible like young Hugh Grant portraits framed all around the place. Did you notice these?
1: Yes, as the camera's just like, slowly <laughs> lifting them out of frame. It's so perfect.
0: I, I admire him a lot for clearly just being like, yeah, let's just laugh at me. I'm gonna laugh at me here. I'm gonna have so much fun with it then that no one will be laughing at me by the end of it. But I'm I'm so game for this that I'm coming in and yes, you can use all of these headshots of me from like twenty, thirty years ago, and uh, we'll just kind of dot them around and that will fill out and that will explain my character in a lot of ways. I, I think that's pretty incredible. But his performance is one that I don't know how many other actors could have given. It's I think it's a pretty short list.
1: It's. I think a lot of movies have tried to use him as probably how he would more like to be perceived, which is kind of like this, oh, bumbling but charming kind of gentleman, where really that his talents are better showcased when there's a clear like lack of transparency between the person he's trying to be and who he really is. Like it's well, like, here's the and, here's and,
0: and, the thing, Andrew is bumbling. Actually, charming in real life. Do people ever go? Oh, he's such a bumbler. It's so charming. <laughs>
1: um, probably not. But no, think...
0: it's it's a very strange thing. It's a strange thing that I guess because of how he looks became something in romantic comedies and in culture that this is. what is charming about it? there's, there's nothing. Sorry, continue.
1: No, you're. It's it's something how it's it's like the inauthentic inauthenticity that's not a word the fakeness in- uh,
0: authenticity yeah the, it's what f- to say but you were there
1: the fakeness of his persona and the charm that he's trying to exude is what works about this character and that's how he's best used where he's kind of smarmy i think is the word is that a word i don't know yeah smarmy uh, is
0: absolutely the right word
1: perfect uh hugh grant is featured in two of my big guilty pleasure movies from 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 young andrew's time uh watching movies so i
0: i know what one of them is i'm i'm worried about what the other might be
1: uh it's a bad movie adam but it's should a... we
0: just should we take that off air is that the kind of caliber we're talking about
1: uh music and lyrics you ever see that
0: no i haven't seen that
1: okay it's it's not good but i i uh, i liked it at the time it's one of those it's okay
0: so... it spoke to you
1: it spoke to me at fifteen or whatever it came out, but anyway, yeah. But this is clearly having not seen his entire filmography. It's not something that I've really, you know, set out to do. Adam uh, is is cover the the Hugh Grant filmography. Not a big Florence Foster Jenkins guy, yeah. but <laughs> but, I, but I think this is this is clearly him being used to the best of his ability and allowing him to flourish. There's one point where he's walking around his his lavishly decorated house with these kind of clear flame frame glasses. And I felt like he was just like a villainous Elton John and it spoke yeah, to sure. me and it worked so well. Uh, and I really elevated the rest of the film because as much as I like what Nicole Kidman did in the first movie, I think he's a better villain because he was, somehow less and more cartoonish more cartoonish as a person less cartoonish as a villain until the yeah
0: I i think he's a better character is the thing so he becomes a better villain just by virtue of that i just think all around like um look there's an element of trying to have a twist in the first film with who nicole kidman is although i it's not a twist really um that maybe doesn't allow you to put in as much character groundwork as as there is with Hugh Grant in this one, there's the differences between the movies is Hugh Grant's character allows you to, within the first, say, 15 minutes of the movie, to put him in a scene with Paddington where he can be the character he is. You know, he may not be displaying all of his motivations, but you're seeing that same personality that comes to define who the character is. He's in a scene with Paddington, with the other key characters in the movie, early on in nicole kidman's case we're getting cutaways to her we're getting a completely different story and there's just something fundamentally in terms of the script work and how you're telling the story that's different there and that sets up a very different challenge that it allows his character to kind of bed into the story for us to get a sense of of him much much sooner than is the case with nicole kidman in in the first movie but he takes that and he like he runs at it and kind of works with it to maximum effect uh richard e grant funny enough another grant is the only other actor i can think of that you could do a version of this maybe maybe there are others maybe there are others that i'm not thinking of but i think hugh grant is is almost less obvious than getting a richard e grant type to do this particular role and because he's so willing to kind of lampoon himself and to send himself up. And there is a knowingness there that isn't necessarily present in his other movies. His other movies would be knowing of, oh, what kind of person likes to go and see a Hugh Grant movie as opposed to what is Hugh Grant in the movies he's in. And I I think this is engaging with that in a really interesting way where he gives a great performance and drives the whole movie along. What's your favorite element of this film, either in terms of kind of your favorite chunk of it or...
1: I think my favorite chunk is, uh, let's say, let's say the the confrontation, we'll call it, or attempted confrontation with Knuckles McGinty, up to the escape. So wh- when the other prisoners send Paddington, not really send him, but kind of trick Paddington into going to complain to the prison cook about the food, and it ends in him accidentally taking a bite of Paddington's marmalade sandwich and just becoming enamored with marmalade and enlisting Paddington to, to you know, help him start cooking up some marmalade in the prison. We're gonna have marmalade sandwiches for lunch. So that moment and how the prison then somehow is revamped into this vibrant community where everybody is contributing to the kitchen and they've got these lavish cakes set all about, and then. Le- that leading up to the moment where the Browns come to to talk to Paddington in his in his cell, and we get them introduced to each member of this crew that's becoming Paddington's prison family. I think all of that is just so fun and so well done. and then you get the the little glimpses into some other great character actors. We already mentioned Brendan Gleason, but there's also Noah Taylor who we mentioned mm-hmm. in, in both Richard Iowati movies. I think that's just so well done. And then from a, from a scale and, I guess, a movie-making perspective, just the whole theatrical nature of the prison escape and then how things splinter off. I think that segment of the movie, when we're in the prison with those characters and seeing Paddington uh, develop is my favorite part. Thank God we didn't get a night of uh, type of ending for Paddington.
0: Oh god, a night off. You might have to remind me of the night off. <laughs> Something I hadn't thought of in a long time. But yes, I agree with that. Thank God we didn't get that kind of ending. Uh yeah, there's that's that's the best sequence across the two films. I just think it's absolutely incredible. I think Brendan Gleeson is amazing. Amazing. Just he's so good as a comedic actor. When he when he leans into that part of him, he's so good. But he generally will end up playing those kind of roles as the straight guy and it's kind of it's a sharp wit kind of played against someone in bruges is the best example of this with colin Farrell, where he's incredibly funny but he's he's part of the double act and it's he's part of the balance for that where here he's actually getting to be the one who's kind of really going out of his way with that and it works so well but it works so well for all of those prisoners it's so well cast it's so well performed again the line readings like when they're going around the room and they're all like, okay, what what desserts can you make? And like <laughs> the, the guy I can't I can't remember the actor's name, which is unfortunate. So but the guy who uh was essentially had it in for Paddington before this and he's like, oh, I make a really good strawberry panna cotta with the passion fruit glaze it's just like the way all of those kind of lines details are delivered and of course they're all in like their pink uniforms because (laughs) Paddington with a red sock in uh, with the laundry and dyed everything pink you know all of that is just it's perfect it's so well written it is so funny that is the classic example of you know just just really simple of what makes people laugh and not what makes kids laugh or what will make adults laugh while the kids are laughing. It's it's just like, what's funny again, like the chaplain influence, the influence of modern times in those sequences is very obvious as much as I guess the, the grand Budapest hotel and the prison sequences, particularly there are kind of front of mind. There is also just that chaplain esque element to all of it too. Um, that just really, really works. And then the other thing I love and like again i'm there are tons of kind of you could point to oh this movie or that movie these are films where paul king has made them in a very kind of knowing way where he's aware of the kind of wider film history around them where he's drawing from things in very considered and very smart ways after in the first film we actually get the mission impossible team as paddington tries to like scale the shoot with like handheld vacuum cleaner things on his on his hands on his paws i guess then Paddington 2 finishes with the mission impossible train sequence i'm like for me this is if we're talking about like where interests meet it's like you're taking you're taking two things that i care deeply about and putting them together and it works really really well
1: yeah red light green light adam um I agree. I agree with everything you've just said. And another thing about the, the scene you mentioned, I want to go back for a little bit, but the scene with the desserts is I think something I spoke about with Ayawati and submarine and, and the double is specificity and how If something is meticulously crafted a line reading or something like that, then Mm -hmm. sometimes it's, it's even funnier. And the way each dessert builds into this crescendo of the most fancy and
0: yeah, it's that's, it's the fact that by you, when you get to the strawberry panna cotta and it has the passion fruit glaze, it's like you've gone from I make a very nice chocolate roulade to, you know, it, it is. It's the details, the fact that it's not just what it is.
1: And to go along with that, I th- you asked me for my favorite moment. I, I need to couch what I, everything I've previously just said and take it back to something I messaged you about, uh, which is the courtroom scene with Richard Aiawati as the forensic investigator. And they break out the marmalade in, that was somehow incriminating in one of Paddington's previous misdeeds. And he rubs it on his gums as if he's doing a little gummy of coke in a mob movie. And the the, the subtle brilliance of that scene, and then I'm pretty sure we don't see him again the, for the rest of the movie. We
0: not. That's, that's his one
1: scene. It's, it's the heat check of all heat checks, and I was delighted by the absurdity of it. Also... I mentioned in Paddington 1 how well Paddington ends up just fitting into the community, and that's heightened in Paddington 2, because it's like a bear goes to jail, and they're just like, who is this new guy? (laughs) And then eventually becomes a key cog in the community. But isn't it
0: completely believable? Isn't that like the ultimate testament to the character at that point? Is that it doesn't feel like a stretch. Like, it doesn't feel like a stretch that all of these prisoners and like from where we first meet Knuckles McGinty as this like intimidating fear that they'll all eventually get won over and brought together and everyone will be all the better for it because of Paddington. Isn't that the ultimate kind of evidence of the character work?
1: It is. And it just goes to show you thematically and and in real life that you can't judge a book by its cover, and we just all need to embrace kindness and embrace the anthropomorphic bears in our lives because we'll all be better for it. I think I think that's really what we can take away from this.
0: Yeah, and I mean one of one thing that I just want to touch on briefly is just I think Paddington 2 in particular,
1: just kind of every
0: shot is really, really well kind of taught through and judged and executed. And one of the ones, again, is this is like this is like classical Hollywood, classic comedy camera work in the scene where the Brown family come to visit him. And then Knuckles McGinty comes in and then all of the other prisoners appear from various different angles. Like that is, again, you're talking that is like Marx Brothers style of comedy and just how the frame is utilized. For that, not only does the film look really good and have a striking style. But it understands how the camera should function for different types of action, which is something that just seems like so basic. But a lot of movies get this wrong. A lot of movies, they just stay stuck in one mode. So you're not going to see the director and the cinematographer kind of move their mind along from that moment where okay, we need to work the frame from a comedy perspective. How, how can we best maximize the frame for comedic effect? There's another example of this that's really simple in uh, in the first film, which is when the Brown family are going to rescue Paddington at the Natural History Museum. And there's like four alcoves of varying height at the side of the steps that they're standing against. Do you know this shot? Um... It's, it's a very subtle detail. Like, There's no dialogue. There's nothing there. You, you may well have missed it. But it's just it's the again, it's the kind of attention to detail. There's four like alcoves that just they actually look like they're probably natural progressions of those stairs in that actual building. But they almost perfectly fit the height of Mr. and Mrs. Brown and the two kids so that they're all emerging from that. It's just it's like really simple kind of visual comedy and just coherent camera work. And that's one of the things I admire, again, because, you know, so many directors and so many studios, they just treat this like, oh, it's a kid's film, who cares? We're just, just, just shoot it, basically, would be the attitude. Just shoot it, we'll put something out there. It doesn't, what does it have to be good for? You know, I feel like this is often the attitude, and it's not the case here, because the action sequence, it's like, yeah, are we, we're we going to do a chase on a train. Oh, well, let's actually think about how Brian De Palma made this look in Mission Impossible, and let's pay our own homage to that. Like, that is that is a level of detail that the whole film is the richer for. I, I think what's worth highlighting here as we get towards wrapping up, this is not a Disney property. This is not a big studio property. This was made by Studio Canal, the, the French distribution company, also involved in production. Uh, it was made in conjunction with Heyday Films, David Heyman's company, which I think people will be very familiar with. I mean... Most notably in recent times, uh, he produced Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for Quentin Tarantino. And before that, and as his biggest kind of hit, he was the producer on the Harry Potter films. So clearly they know what they're doing. But this is not this is not under Disney. This is not under Universal. This is not under Warner. And that is why the budgets are relatively modest. But I also think there is an independent style kind of spirit and attention to detail there that is really refreshing. And it does, it evokes something of, and this is why I was making the point when we did the Ayawadi episode, that I think he would be great. They need a director for Paddington Tree, he's the guy. It's because the same kind of qualities that are in his movies, you can see that's something that Paul King brought from his TV work as well to these films, and did something that like you can genuinely stand up and be proud of the work he's done. It's not like, oh, you know, I did these Paddington movies there's something I want to forget about. And maybe I'll get to make something different in my career. He has made them in a way that he gets the credit he deserves for it. And they can be an actual part of his career, an actual part of his story, an actual platform for which he can build upon. And maybe someday do whatever he wants on a bigger scale. We did again, it came up a couple of episodes ago. He is his next project. And the reason why he is unlikely to do Paddington tree is because he's going to be working on a Charlie and the chocolate factory movie which I just want to get, revisit for a second because you weren't interested in it two weeks ago. Would you be more interested in it now?
1: Oh, yeah, it feels like it's in a good pair of hands to do something that's both original, inventive, and pays tribute to the one of those films that actually worked, which is <laughs> the Gene Wilder one. Yeah, so I'm, I'm going into that with a much more open mind and probably more along the lines of... Yeah. Intrigue and excitement.
0: And I hope the lesson for this for for you, but not even so much for you, I hope for other people listening. I hope people who would never watch a film like this just take the time, like take it's just over two or three hours. Check out these two movies, particularly in the current times we're living in. You could do a lot worse. Like they're good fun. They're nice to look at. They're very much gonna allow you to just shut your brain off from everything else. Um, but go into that that with an open mind. Just go into movies with an open mind and knows what happens? I guess to to wrap up, we should finish with Richard Iwadi, Paddington Tree. Are you on board?
1: Oh, very much so. I the thing I said to you initially after finishing them was, I I I loved them both. I I think they're perfect movies. Eventually, in theory, someday I'll have a child. So if they just want to keep churning out Paddingtons until I die, so I can bond with whatever children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, cousins. You know, I'm on board for all of it. The Paddington universe, if 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 everything works out, they'll they'll make more than the the Fast and the Furious franchise. I know they won't, but that that would be a, a great world to live in.
0: They yeah, they absolutely won't do that. And you know, maybe that's for the best because also, what happens by the time it's rebooted? What does that look like? I I mean, I think I would like to imagine certainly that. This is the kind of use of, you know, existing intellectual property that's there. Oh, you need something that people know to, you know, get a budget to attach stars to get something made. Now, if that is the case and we hear that's the case, this is the example where it doesn't just have to be a Disney live action remake. It doesn't just have to be a Marvel movie, a Star Wars movie. Like you can you can root around just a little bit further and you'll find things that matter to people and you can tell them in a way that's sincere, that's inventive and that really understands, you know, kind of what's at the heart of that particular piece of work. I think that's what's key here is not only does it kind of not only does it put across the character of Paddington in a way that's reflective of kind of what Paddington has always been but it's it's reflecting kind of a wider spirit even a more kind of narrowly focused idea at the heart of the original stories what the character means what it speaks for and it's also managing to bring it back at a time where those ideas those teams are more resonant than they've been for you know 80 years so i think it's a really it's a really strong example of just kind of creative filmmaking in terms of we talk so much about writing. We talk so much about directing. But all of those things are great in this. The acting is great. But it's I think it's a real kind of shining example for lauding producers and good production because, you know, it's easy to look at them as the bad guys and to, to think of it that way, particularly when it comes to spinning off things that could, you know, gross hundreds of millions of dollars worldwide. And they have a very kind of distinct vision in trying to do that. But you can do that in a way that's interesting, that serves everyone well, and that leaves everyone with a piece of work that is, you know, something they can be proud of coming out the other side. I think these two movies are certainly evidence of that. Let's hope we see more movies like these. I mean, just generally, I, I think things that wide appeal, um, not not necessarily going and playing for that, but understanding that there are certain things that are universal. There are certain things that emotionally, that in terms of humor, can connect with wide sides of people. And if you tell a story in the right way involving them, hey, guess what? This can still happen. You know, there's, it's not like what worked for, say, Steven Spielberg or what worked for George Lucas is just gone, never to return again. It doesn't exist. It's not something people are interested in. Those things still work. I think it's just the, I guess, whether it's the interest of, of filmmakers or the appetite for studios to invest in those ideas. That's been the issue in some regards, but this has been, this has been your Paddington experience. No regrets, Andrew?
1: None whatsoever. It was a great experience that, you know, if you're going through a long work week and you need something to remind you that joy can exist in the world, I think you should watch uh, both Paddington's this weekend.
0: Okay. We are going to take one of our very, typical hard turns <laughs> because next week it's nearly halloween and we are going to talk about our favorite horror films that's what you've got to look forward to in the next episode uh, more will be revealed in time i think we'll probably be talking about our top three favorite horror films it'll be andrew and i and i think we'll have a guest along with us as well so if you want to make sure you catch that subscribe to us wherever you get your your podcasts you'll you'll find us pretty much everywhere captured and celluloid and you won't miss an episode you can also follow us on Twitter at CapturedOnCell. We're over on Facebook at on Celluloid. and we'll be back with you very, very soon. We'll be back with you before Halloween for that episode. Until the next time, thanks to all of you for listening. Thank you, Andrew.
1: Thanks, Adam.